0: Welcome to episode five of the Serious Squash podcast, and I have to say this is probably the one I've learned the most from so far, and uh, maybe not surprisingly because it's Mike Way on this episode. Uh, we talk a lot about how he got started in coaching, uh, how he became working with Jonathan Power and Graham Riding, and uh, you know how he was able to cool down Jonathan talk to him between games. Uh, talk about his work with Ali Farag, uh, a lot of insightful tips about the mental game that he's worked on him with, Uh, talk a lot about college squash and what you need to do if you want to get into Harvard and play on the college team, Uh, and talk a lot about, uh, you know, other parts of squash coaching in general, favorite practices, uh, you know, most underrated shots and that kind of stuff. So amazing episode. Um, I know you're going to really enjoy this. So uh, yeah, without further ado, here is uh, episode five with Mike Way. Okay, welcome to episode five of the Serious Squash podcast. Uh, I have a great uh, guest on today, Uh, coached in uh, Canada for quite a while, and a lot of you wouldn't know him from coaching uh, Jonathan Power and Graham Riding, and uh, now he's been coaching in uh, Boston at Harvard for, uh, I'm not exactly sure how many years, but uh, Mike Way, thanks a lot for coming on today.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Chris. Uh, Delighted. uh... To be here and have a fun uh, hour or so talking squash um and i'm just uh, just coming right up on 10 years actually two weeks time it'll be 10 years uh 10 years at harvard so wow. there you go
0: i, I remember when you made
1: that move it doesn't seem that long ago wow Right. it may not seem a long go to you. It seemed like a heck of a long time to me. It's been, <laughs> it's been a lifetime down here, and I don't know how I survived the first few years, but here I am and loving it, so there yeah. you
0: go. Well, you've done amazing things there, and, and I want to get into Harvard, but I want to start off uh, back into how you got into coaching, kind of work our way up to uh, where you are now. So, you know, just a brief little history on how you got into coaching squash.
1: Um, well, it's, it's, uh, it, it's extremely brief. I think like most coaches, um, uh, I got into it accidentally. I always wanted to be a player. Um, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't talented enough or strong enough. Uh, but I, I but I had that itch and I kept pushing it as far as I could go. And, of course, when you come towards, you know, get into your late 20s or whatever, you start thinking, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay the bills? Um, I never thought about coaching. I didn't really want to, to coach, to be quite honest. But um, it's something that happened quite organically, and I was very fortunate to have, I was at the Valhalla Club um, in Toronto, and just had that, uh, very lucky to have a group of young juniors that were very talented, very passionate and excited, and I thought, okay, well, if you are going to, if this is gonna be your vocation, let's do a bloody good job. Um, And that set me down a road of, you know, I've always been a very curious, bloke very curious coach and I've, I've always been a sponge for information so I said about with this good group of juniors I said about uh, trying to learn from the best around the world um, and I would invite anybody and everybody ex players current players uh, big-name coaches I would bring them to Toronto pay their airfare put money in their pocket and then organize camps and clinics not just at the Valhalla but sometimes throughout Ontario Sometimes across Canada, try and get some coaching symposiums or seminars going. And all the time, of course, I was able to drill down on their own methodology and what drove them. Uh, and that, that's really how it started but it. But so did it start by, um, uh, by design? No, it didn't. You know in, in America, I'm sure some other countries you see you see young, uh, young graduates coming out of their sport, and there's a real pathway into coaching and I didn't see that in squash Uh, I don't necessarily see it now to be quite honest Um, so it happens with a lot of us uh, quite incidentally uh, and maybe out of necessity as well
0: yeah well it's pretty amazing how uh, yeah you were able to come from that and and then next thing you know I mean maybe there was a bit of a gap but you're working with uh, John and power and Graham riding so how did you become coaches to those guys
1: well, as I say, the, the it was the junior program that, that kicked it off at the Valhalla and there was a little Shahir Razik, <laughs> um and his brother, there was uh, Scotty Stoneberg, Danny Vanasek, some names from the past. And then uh, Pat Riding and Graham, They the family were living in Winnipeg at the time and they moved to Toronto because they just wanted a sort of a bigger base of squash generally. Um, and the, the, the guys just ended up... Uh, On the doorstep. And so we had this concentrated group of of very good kids. Uh, And it just really took off from there. Uh, And then eventually we went down to um, uh, I moved to the Trial Athletic Club, the old original one on Queen Street, Toronto. Um, And the the, the, the group expanded a little bit. Marty Baisley came in, Graham's uh, Graham Romani Maria Married now, of course, Melanie Jans, there was Kevin Patrick, Victor Berg, amongst others. (coughs) And Jonathan would come in and play uh, practice matches with um with graham and and I always wanted to be able to talk to Graham between games in those practice matches, and I would let Jonathan say, "Hey Jay, I'm just going to chat to Graham here nothing personal just trying to get his uh, trying to get his thinking on track and so on and so forth and then one day he just turned around and just said, "Hey, do you notice anything about my game?" <laughs> And of course, apart from all the brilliant stuff, it was like, okay, there are a few holes to fill here. here and, um, and it just started a conversation, started a good conversation. Um, and at that time, there was a guy called Bob Bowers, who was from the armed forces. And Bob had, had, had known the family nearly as uh, Jonathan's whole life. Uh, Jonathan, Ian, and Courtney. And was good friends with the dad, with John. Um, and he had great insight into Jonathan, which helped me a lot because I was a very hard ass too hard, the hard-ass coach and it wasn't going to work for Jonathan and, and Bob was very clear about that right early on so Bob I Bob and I teamed up he did all the off-course stuff um, especially the strength and the flexibility injury prevention stuff um, and he said if if you're going to work with this lad you've got to you've got to, you've got to grow and expand yourself so it's, it's just it can't be you know my way or the highway approach. It can't be this hard. you had to, and I had to learn. I had to, It was. Uh, it was a good. Uh, it was a good lesson for me. It was a good. It was a good time for me to evolve as a as a young man and a coach, and to try and be effective. With um, with a young man that that struggled in 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 different ways, but with this incredible raw talent. So I, I think I expanded and grew as a coach. There's no question that the guys around him at the time is really what made it happen. His friendship and respect for Graham, his friendship with Shahir and Kelly uh, and the group is really what allowed it to happen. Um, And even before then, I think Pat Pat Riding had a big influence on that group, a very big influence on his brother, on Graham, and Graham's maturity and wisdom that I think he got from mum, from dad, and, and his older brother. That came into the mix, and that was very important for everyone involved in the group, was to, whether to understand it, but to accept the fact that here was Jonathan, and Jonathan was a package. <laughs> and uh, what are you gonna, how are you gonna handle this package? All of us, all of us, not just from the coaching staff. Bob, Bob Bowers <clears throat> was absolutely phenomenal and bob is uh, what i would call as a as a human being i call him a catcher's mitt he would absorb the power from uh, whatever is coming at him and uh, and be be able to deal with whatever the energy and the mix of energy the different personalities and types around him and, and he helped enormously i don't think uh without bob and without the mix of the, the players and the maturity um you know, a lot of people might raise their raise their eyebrows and using the word maturity when, when Jonathan's put into the mix, but he, but he wasn't that so much that he was, um, an immature lad. It was, it was that he had struggles, but there was a maturity around the group and they, they knew how to deal with, with this energy that was, that could be quite volatile.
0: Yeah. I actually, I remember Bob, uh, from when I was a junior as well, and a lot of the camps with Rob Brooks, uh, he'd be doing, there doing all the off court stuff. And, and I've talked to him actually quite a bit uh, over the years about training and for squash. And you would be, you know, I would love to pick his brains one day on one, one of these episodes. I'm sure he'd have so much information to share.
1: Oh, yeah. That, that, there's, your next, there's your next podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's
0: definitely I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email him after this. Um, <laughs> so I, I, a question about Jonathan, uh, one or two. I was just wondering, everyone knows he, you know, would get a bit upset on court, like he didn't hide his emotions. So what, how, what would you say to him between games if he was getting upset to get him back on
1: track? Um, well, if you go to the specifics about what to say to him between games, when he was gone off track, the first thing is actually does not say much at all. So when he first came off, um, he actually didn't want you to jump in and speak. He didn't want you in his face. He didn't want you too close to him. So the first thing is actually don't say anything would be, would be rule number one. <laughs> rule number two would be to acknowledge anything that he was frustrated at. So if it, it was the ref, and you thought the ref was doing a good job, and he thought he was doing a bad job, then you are going to go along with that. Yeah, he's a shit ref. <laughs> um, uh, so you're sort of going to take, take that sort of sting out, and then, then wait for him to settle, and then start the conversation. He rarely, even in coaching, liked to be told uh, what to do. The best thing that you could do to reach um, – a personality like that is that when you spot what he does that's really good is you emphasize that. So, you know, my way would be, hey, Jay, you know, that period there in the middle of that game, boy, were you in control when you did one, two, three. So just, just on how you presented what you wanted. There were always two or three things that I would probably say that were reminders, maybe not every game, but nearly every game, certainly every match on big matches, there were certain things that needed to be said and reminded, which I believe uh, he tuned into uh, the best part of himself as a player. So his intuitive feeling on the court, on anticipation and and feeling the correct sh- shot selection. And there were a t- few things, and we, we would legitimately work on them um, especially when he was coming up in order to beat nickel. So there were a few things that he had to address. One was, number, number one was his length. So he's known for his flair, but you can't do much with your flair unless you've got a ball in the middle or the front. And you want a ball in the middle or the front, then you better do something about your length. And his forehand straight hitting was <laughs> had some holes in it. So, you know, in the early days, there was a lot of work on some basics. In fact, there was always work on basics because there has to be, um, but once his straight hitting got better, which it did dramatically, then things really opened up. And he, when he laid down a length, he laid down a length like no one. I don't, I don't care. He may be known for all his flair and all this, uh, you know, all this stuff in the middle and the front, but if you look at his, his laid down length, it was just phenomenal. That's where things took off. So there were things in there that were common to a lot of his tough matches. And the matches that were not so tough, um, he needed to stay respectful. When he stayed respectful, he always, like everybody, he played much better. When he when he lost a sense of that respect, um, he would expect and assume that the rallies would be shorter and the match would be over. And that, of course, is not how you, when you got a person a notch or two below you that's not how you reel them in you you reel them in in squash um and arguably in tennis in similar ways but you have to go back your business with the right mindset and he would sometimes slip up there so you don't think he
0: played better when he vented and got it out of the system if he like yelled at a referee or went off and well, no i,
1: I don't I, I actually don't think so i yeah. think he played his best squash um now you could say you know so, so the question that often comes up, you know, <clears throat> is he like a John McEnroe? Does he get rid of all the changes? Does he play better, but if you actually watch squash specific, he always competed hard. So let's say, let's say for argument's sake that some of his toughest matches, antics-wise, were against um, Dave Palmer, for example. Did I ever feel that he would produce his best squash? No, I don't think he produces his best squash. I think he produced his best squash when he was very quiet inside. And he tuned into so You'd have to ask him. There's, there's, your, there's your third podcast. <laughs> Jonathan, get on the bloody phone. Uh, I felt he played his best watch. And if he disagrees with me, then that's fine. But when he was in a quiet place, and he got into a quiet place when he felt supremely confident in his body. And when his body, in quotes here, cooperated, and he felt really good. Because he's so strong, he's so dynamic. His movement was off the charts you know people kept focusing you know the reporters were focused on his antics and that but people were missing just missing what a phenomenal athlete he was and i would see it every day we would have practice sessions and i would i would have my my hand on my forehead going holy shit, what, what he's doing right here so he had these moments <clears throat> where he would get uh he would feel fit Bob had got his body sorted out, his, his back wasn't getting tight. He just felt really good. His, whatever was going off court was being managed. So off the court, he was, so he, he beat, life was good. He was happy. What do they say? A happy athlete is a fast athlete. So he's happy, his body feels good, and he's, free, and he's fit and he's free to play. And he would go into these, what I would call relatively quiet modes that is when I felt he played his best squash. Now, you could say when the chips were down, his antics might release some tension and frustration, but from a, and so they would produce great performances from the point of view of battling back or battling through the wind. But if, as a squash nut, um, did I think that was the best squash? No, I didn't. So if you think of his match against Barada, in the quarters of the of the world championships, now you're saying, "Whoa, what what is that? Where did that come from? Like, wow, you know." Even nickel in the final, to be quite honest, yeah. of that tournament, he lost in the final. He lost the first game, sorry, <clears throat> but even in that first game in uh, against nickel, he was he was in a very quiet place. He was very happy in a quiet place that whole week. So.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the zone I guess, but also the all the off court stuff that goes with it that's just you're in the right well, mindset you know
1: well the, yeah, I I I don't disagree but I think you have different types of zone and I think that the the zone is it's not something that you can chase down it, it is fleeting it's um uh you you just you don't know when that's going to hit so when people talk about the zone they hit that moment but I'm talking about it was probably a zone for Jonathan but it had pretty specific components, and it was often to do with those those three things. He's fit, his body feels good, and his life off the court is being managed.
0: Yeah. So uh, how do you think the game overall has evolved since that time, since you were working with those guys?
1: Um, from, uh, well, <clears throat> it's become faster. So there's a greater... Emphasis, I think, on strength and flexibility. It's even more dynamic, even though it was with, I mean, as soon as they lowered the tin, as soon as they lowered the tin, they changed the game um, for the better, of course. Um, But it's even more so now. And you still had players in that transition from old school to new school who really didn't have a great short game without without being disrespectful and throwing names around. You know, there were still some what we would call classic attritional players um, uh, in, in the sense that they didn't have shots short and they weren't necessarily, uh, didn't have great tactical awareness. I, I just don't think it's even possible, remotely possible, to come near the top. Now, you, some people disagree and they might look at, at that. Uh, and I don't mind mentioning his name because he's expanding his game, but, but, you know, the Kiwi guy, Cole, and when he first came on the scene what did his game look like and but what does it look like now And where is he going with it and so on I, i'm not attached to the game enough at the in, in on the pro level really to to give um to give really uh insightful answers here but um to me the game has changed that it, it's the, the short game and the tactical awareness those are And when you see players now on their way up, or I see them at the top in college squash and they don't have that tactical awareness, it's like, well, okay, this kid's really got a whole two or three notches to learn tactically before you can get there. And sometimes it's because they don't have uh, the requisite shots to the front or they're overhitting their kills or something pretty specific. But it's forever evolving, right? Our game is forever evolving. Yeah, well,
0: something I, I know a lot of people would want me to ask you, and I'm curious about what you're going to say, in their prime, on their best day, who would win, Jonathan or Ali Freig?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, the... Um, so, so you can
0: answer that, uh, if you can uh, answer you
1: know, So, everyone's going to... So, if, if, if Ali had grown up in Jonathan's time, would he be playing the same style? No, he'd be, it'd be a more conservative style. If Jonathan was playing today... In today's game, having experienced, the, uh, let's say he's played a few years on the tour, he'd be, a very, he'd be a very tough guy to beat. And so the question might be, the question might be, without me actually answering the question, which is probably the most diplomatic, <laughs> is um, would Ali be able to deal with Jonathan? I'm talking about antics-wise, energy, emotionally. Um, in the way that Ali is uh, evolving right now, I would say, yeah, he probably, because he's getting better and better in the head. But he has had, and one has seen him struggle in areas like that. And Jonathan's a different beast on the court. So Nickel didn't have a problem with Jonathan. I'm talking about from a mental point of view. Power didn't, uh, Power Palmer, Dave Palmer didn't have a problem with him, but, but but a lot of players did, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it can be tough to deal with this. It's like, there's like this energy on the court and it's tough to deal with. And some people would rise to the occasion, but that doesn't mean that you rise to the occasion tactically. So you can rise to the occasion emotionally and you can get pissed off and you can say over my dead body, but it doesn't mean you're gonna play your best squash, which is actually where, which is actually one of the biggest issues that Jonathan had. So when Jonathan, going back to a couple of questions ago, you know, when Jonathan will get excited and upset and you ask the question, when did, when did he play his best squash? Sometimes his tactical brain would turn off a little bit. Um, And you just you don't need that right when the the chips are down. So who's gonna win? I'm saying it's gonna be a very, very, it's gonna be a very, very interesting fight. The only thing I can tell you this, I can tell you this, I'm confident to say this. Um, I don't know how well Jonathan knows Ali, but Jonathan, if he got to know Ali well, he would like him. And Jonathan, when Jonathan really liked someone, he would settle it. In other words, it didn't get in the way. I think some people think that it, you know you should hate your opponent. I tell my guys, whatever, how are you gonna play better if you, <laughs> you hate your opponent? You don't play better. You might find an extra fire in your belly if someone is cheating, <clears> they're <throat> pissing you off. But it doesn't mean you play better. That's what I, I just said a few minutes ago. Um, but I think Jonathan would like Ali, and I think he would enjoy He would enjoy the encounter.
0: Yeah. Well, they're just two totally different, like how they play, how they move, but both. uh, They they are
1: different, but they are similar in certain regards. They are similar. So in my opinion, Jonathan read the game as well as anyone from his era. Uh, His good buddy, Anthony Hill did. Of course, Shabana's perhaps maybe his main strength. And Ali reads the game very well. And Jonathan could feel the right shot selection coming down in the arm and so does Ali so there's different you know Ali's arguably his best shot was his boast and arguably Jonathan's worst shot was his boast definitely the shot he played the least um, but there are similarities there anyway
0: uh, so are you surprised that Ali got to the level he's at and how well he's been playing
1: I am, I would say um, I was a little surprised at the time frame. So, when he was at Harvard, um, he, um, like most Egyptians, I say that with respect. So, <laughs> I don't want to get any emails from <laughs> the Egyptian Coaching Association, but they actually just a few years ago didn't really believe an awful lot in the mental side of things. So, um, I remember trying to talk to Ali about uh, undertaking a mental program, just having a look at it. And uh, in his beautiful Egyptian English, he said, no, 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 Mike, we don't do, we don't believe in mental programs in Egypt, we just play. So um, I just uh, did what any good coach has to do. I waited, I just, and what I had to wait for, I had to wait for a bad performance. <laughs> And I say this again in air quotes. Hopefully, a loss. <clears throat> so when the first loss came, which I believe was to um, the top lad at Princeton, Harity Todd, Todd Harity. I believe that was his first loss. Um, it wasn't a great ma- great match for Todd. He played really well. Ali didn't play the best, and that's why I, I broached the subject and he he said no no mike i just had just a very bad day it's okay <laughs> so anyway his second loss again this is all from memory if my memory serves me well his second loss came the same season against ama khalifa ama khalifa is actually one of my all time favorite squash players i love absolutely loved watching him play i think as much as i've enjoyed watching anybody play his presence on the ball his length was outrageous. Uh, he was just a beautiful, beautiful man to watch. And of course, he's too tall <laughs> for our game. And, um, but he beautiful game. And in that match, Ali nearly beat Armour love. He had match balls and so on. He, anyway, he loses 3-2. And it was after that match that he agreed to consider looking to see what went on in the head. Because he had a meltdown during the match and between games. Uh, And um, when I say I meltdown, I don't mean behaviorally speaking, he's too well brought up and polite a gentleman to do that and talk about within his own head. But anyway, he took on that. So I'm surprised it had happened so quickly, but he, he took on the mental program. It evolved during his time at Harvard. I think he would agree to that. And then, you know, in the Egyptian, in the military, he had the freedom to go and play tournaments. He wasn't sure he was going to turn pro at that time. Um, and I don't think necessarily his parents wanted him to, you know, he's very pro- professional, the parents pro- professional people, I think his, his dad's a doctor <clears throat> or they're both doctors, I'm not sure. And uh, he was, um, he was destined to be an engineer. He did engineering, one of the toughest things to, to, to do for a student athlete with all the time involved so he plays these tournaments and all the time he's working on his game and he's evolving this stuff in the head. And then when he decides to go full time, he even got into it more. And I've been massively impressed and, I, and I've gotten full of admiration for what he's done. And I, we still talk about his mental stuff. It's the only thing I can maybe contribute in some small way. And really it's just a, a, a question answer and a rejigging, but I'm delighted when he finds a new level, and uh, I got a phone call at um, this year, this uh, this season, I got a phone call this season, right before COVID broke, and he's he calls me that we're down a pen, and he's all excited about he's learned something else inside himself, inside his head, um, and he was trying to describe what it felt like, and of course that's what happens with mental programs that they become they're very formulaic. <clears throat> to start and then they they morph into um, into a feeling and they feel their mindset they feel their way through but you can't start like that but anyway you know, he's he's taken it to fa- a fantastic level so
0: could you give us a little uh, insight into how somebody could go through engineering at harvard and still come out and be playing <laughs> at that amazing level and become a world number 1 squash
1: player well um that you know we're we're in okay a couple of things to say here we are in a quantity driven <clears throat> environment for for student athletes and the biggest drivers of sport the biggest drivers you could say for anything are our passion and enthusiasm and burnout <clears throat> is the biggest killer in junior sport today and it's killed by a number of factors none more so than the parent and the misguided coach and of course there was a, a famous book um can't remember the title it was a canadian professor the Ten Thousand hour rule and of course it was a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of a study done by two professors about reaching uh your full potential <clears throat> anyway the quantity box is what drives a lot of parents, most parents, and a lot of coaches. Sport used to be seven, eight months a year. Now they're 12. Coaches sat and saw that more and more and more and more and more. Um, and of course, as you, go, as you keep the quantity going, quantity has its place. I'm not saying quantity doesn't have its place. But quantity doesn't equal an elite athlete. So what Ali um, had, has, is such a deep passion and enthusiasm for his sports. I'll tell, I tell you a couple of funny stories. They both have a similar punchline. But I came down, I came down to training one day and we have our front five courts um, <clears throat> and the rest of the courts uh, are out the back. And I walk around the corner to the glass court and I hear, I think, a conversation. But this alley is on his own and he's hanging on the glass supports, the glass stanchions outside the door. And he's leaning down, his head is down, he's got his eyes closed. And he's talking to squash. (laughs) And he's saying, I love squash. I love to play this game. You know what I mean? So it's it's a funny moment. He hears me, he looks up, There's no embarrassment, he's like, Mike, how are you doing? And another time I came down and he was in the same position and he was talking to the glass court. He's talking to the court. I love this chord. this chord is a beautiful chord. I love this chord. this is my chord. Um, so passion and enthusiasm are the drivers. So with that in mind, you're at Harvard, you're doing engineering, what are you gonna do with your 90 to 120 minutes every day? Well, my God, you are gonna squeeze everything you possibly can. So we watch a lot of young athletes train today and they put in x number of hours they love to say i do four hours and i do five hours the time wasting is off the charts they go down it's a leisurely change there's long conversations there are quasi warm-ups they don't properly warm up because they're still chatting they're still on their iphones they start their drills don't get right into it until 15 20 minutes later they work their way mentally into the program then you're going to get maybe some quality stuff out etc etc so what our guys have to do is not just if you're studying engineering we tell all our guys we talk about the commitment switch and the commitment switch so academic harvard and um athletic harvard is separated by the charles river so every athlete of every sport bar a couple wrestling and volleyball <clears throat> but nearly every athlete crosses this bridge And I tell my guys when you hit the bridge I want you to start thinking about your session so they have to come up with a commitment switch so it's a feeling but it's a word a phrase or whatever and you think about that and you think about what you want out of your day now do I think every athlete is throwing a commitment switch on the bridge no if the person is come, but what I want to see is, and what the, the experienced coach knows is that by the time they hit the courts and by the time they hit warm up, I can spot whether my guys have actually started the process of having what I call a commitment switch. Because we actually don't have this length of time. We do not have the luxury of two sessions a day every day. Now, you can come and do two sessions a day voluntarily, and we're allowed to coach in season if you so decide. But there has to be something with our players, and they have an obligation to themselves, to the coaches, to the program, to the alumni, to their teammates. Everything, to fill up with, to turn up with, for commitment. And commitment is an all-in thing. It's you know you can't be and you can't be neutral. If you're on an even if you're in an individual sport, oh this only affects me. If I don't give my all today, it only affects me. No 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 no. It doesn't do that. Neutral. I remember Bob Bowers saying that you know you either give energy or you steal energy. He used to call them energy thieves. I just remember that. He used to call them energy thieves. And they do. They steal energy because they don't understand the definition of the word synergy, and they don't understand what their role is. So what's important for us when we recruit is that we recruit kids. We try and suss out where they understand what, what this means, what this commitment means. And then we work on that from a mental part of part of the mental program. The commitment switch is part of a training mindset. So we work on three mindsets in the, in the mental stuff. I and mean, this is the, the most important one, is the training mindset. <clears throat> so we have a foundation, a training mindset, and a performance mindset. And this is, this is it. This is actually where it happens. When the training mindset is right, boom, boom. So what I would say about Ali very short answer, eh, Chris?
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm really enjoying this. I'm coaching now at Western. So, yeah, I mean, that, go. I'm going to be working with 20 plus athletes. So, <laughs> it's really, at least I'm going to really enjoy this. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: no one else is for you and me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I'm sure other, other coaches will, for sure. It's really,
1: really interesting. So, um, so, for Ali, like I would say, the majority, if not all of them, he would turn up with his passion, with his enthusiasm with his level of commitment, and he would squeeze out in 90 to 120 minutes, and then the physical training afterwards, uh, probably what some athletes would take four to five hours. The quality, and by the way, by the way, that sums up Jonathan Power. That sums up Jonathan Power. Everybody liked to write about how he wasn't fit enough, and he didn't develop, let me tell you something. When Jonathan turned up to train, it was incredible. The energy, when he was tuned in, and what he could get out of hitting 20 balls in one minute was beyond what anyone else could do. We would be doing length drills, and he would be hitting perfect length, perfect length, and he would just look up and say, that's enough, Mike, let's move on. And I knew, I knew that he was bang on, and he was correct. Now, he would want to move on. If he was, the funny thing is about him, if he was having a shit day, he wanted to move on. <laughs> <laughs> but when he had a great day, he didn't want to waste time because he wanted yeah. to get to the stuff that created excitement. And there you have it again. Whether it's a Jonathan Power, a Graham Riding, a Shahir Razik, or an Ali Farag, <clears throat> you're talking about passion and enthusiasm. Look at you, look at Sarah Fitzgerald. Uh, you look at Amanda Sobey, you look at um, Gina Kennedy. So this is really what we see. We see uh, the passion and enthusiasm are the essential drivers. They are the essential drivers. And you have to really balance and guide young athletes. You have to pull reins on them because they don't always know how to pull their own reins. You have to pull them for them when necessary. A very important part of coaching so Sorry if for the short answer.
0: <laughs> yeah no but i i have found that really interesting i so i you can keep going if you have more to say but <laughs> i just want to ask about um obviously at harvard it's like such a tough school to get into uh academically and also your squash team so uh so strong um how, like what would you say to some junior out there whose dream is to go to harvard and play on your squash team
1: most of the kids so the the athletic Boxes to check are a given so you are either strong enough <clears throat> To make our top nine or to make an impact on the program, which means you're recruitable or you're not You either are committed. You can't become committed. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you know I'll I'll, I'll get to it. I'm, I'm becoming more involved. I'm getting more excited. No, 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 A commitment Is something it's that intrinsic drive that you actually cannot help yourself. You, you just you, you can't you can't miss a day's practice and training when you're in season because you can't wait to get to it. it that's what it feels like. It's the, the commitment is to do with the athlete that f- doesn't feel right if they've had a bad day in the office, or if they skip to the training, they don't feel right, they've got to go back. This is where, again, you've got to pull the reins, or they've got to pull the reins on themselves. When they get injured, which is just such a diabolical thing for which all the athletes go through, but the committed athletes, they, it just drives them crazy. So these are the boxes that are an absolute given for us. I don't have to, when I'm looking at recruiting a young student athlete, yes, we're looking to make sure those boxes are checked, but we're not sort of talking about kids, well, and then, and then having a conversation, you know, do you, do you really love squash? Do you think you want to play for four years? Do you like to train? We don't want to do that. We want to hear that. Yes, an absolute given. And you can tell. You can tell by how they perform um, in a tournament. Do they play in the consolation after? Oh, no, I don't play in the consolation. I'm gone. Whether they're scanning the gallery. When they scan the gallery, I love these kids. They scan the gallery and they see a college coach standing at the top. And suddenly, (laughs) they're transformed. Well, guess what? That, you could say, well, that's just a normal thing, but that's not a committed. That's not a committed student athlete. Committed student athlete is when their eyeballs are on the court in the moment. They're not scanning the gallery. They're not looking over the place. They don't go pick themselves up because they have to because they need an outside source <clears throat> to give them energy, to find a fire in the belly, to find something inside to fight hard and work through. <clears throat> so, to answer my question is. <laughs> Focus on your studies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you check all the boxes, which is a given, then focus on your studies. <laughs>
0: yeah. So now that your team's kind of taken the reins from Trinity, how do you keep the pressure off them to uh, focus on like getting better and maybe the process and enjoying squash and the enthusiasm yeah. instead of like, Oh, we got to win. We got to beat these guys. We can't lose. Like,
1: all right, well, first of all. <laughs> How did you start that question? Say it again.
0: Well, how did you take the reins from Trinity? We haven't taken the reins from off.
1: Trinity. No, no, no. We well. have not taken the reins from Trinity. So, if uh, uh, Paul Asciante, if, you, if you're listening to this, <laughs> he's, he's absolutely waiting for my answer. and He's going to take your question and he's going <laughs> to motiv- he's gonna use it to motivate his guys like this no tomorrow. As, oh, as okay. he should. As he okay. should. But They always he, come like-
0: back. They did kind of kind of like run the c s a like for i don't know how many years cool. eleven twelve years, and I'm i was not arguing that to be able to do this
1: like- i'm not arguing that i'm just yeah. i'm just i'm just um i'm playing with you with regards to now that we've taken the reins so we've we've managed uh you know to win uh to win it back to back uh but that doesn't mean anything. he always comes back with a vengeance so first of all you know we don't uh uh we don't really talk about uh the fact that we've got an arrow on our back we we actually i might say to the guys you know what um i don't like arrows on the back end i want the arrows right on the front you want to come at me (laughs) my, my bullseye is right here come come on we've been waiting for you you've been you you're coming you're coming to uh the muir center at harvard you're looking for us well you know what with our hands on our hips we've been waiting for you where you been you're late let's get going so again there's got to be an energy and an attitude that the team has that the coaches have that the program has uh about you know seeking excellence and um uh, and wanting to be challenged and to use a great line from the movie four feathers uh, god puts you in our way (laughs) so we don't have to be religious or not to get that but that you want these obstacles, right? You want these challenges, you want these obstacles. Um, And at the end of the day, uh, it's still gonna come down to the individual specifics. So the program has gotta be what it is. The program has gotta have an absolute intelligence about it and it's gotta have a purpose, a deep purpose, and and the purpose individually and collectively to get the job done. And when you go down into the weeds, even though the team energy and the program can help athletes through tough times, they don't, in uh, in the longer, harder matches, that is not what creates the winners. It's to do with the work the individual does. Now, there's got to be a collective. So the collective is to do with a deeper appreciation. Again, we come back to the, to what seems to be my favorite word in this this, uh, conversation, which is commitment. Uh, But feeling gratitude um, and belonging to something bigger than they are individually. So we've got a bit of humility in there. So all these things, they're in the background. And when they're in the background, they actually allow for the individual to be receptive. So the important stuff is what we're doing individually And the background, as I just described it, is what allows the mind to open up. So when you're committed to something bigger than you are, when you feel gratitude, when you have a little bit of humility, you will take the feedback. We can have intelligent conversations. We can design a program. We can tweak the program and so on and so forth. And we can make headway. And it is fun. It is fun to coach. And it is fun to be coached. when we are all in this together, um, and when your teammates are helping you, even though you're challenging each other, your position on the team, but they're helping each other, they're pushing, I'm pushing you, you're pulling me, and the guy above you, and we are all into this, we're all in this together. And then we have all these great lessons to do with character, and that's really what keeps us on track. But after that worked for me, the background work for me is a given. That to me is a given. That's the foundation. But in the heat of battle, it's those character skills are going to come to very important use. But in the heat of battle, it's what are the specifics for that athlete's program and the intelligence that you worked on. So you've observed the athlete, you videotaped it, you reviewed and you've had this repeat cycle of conversations and review and they have tweaked their own program and then you've got all your components of a mental program and you make sure that there's buy-in and there's very little buy-in when you start out down this road very little every now and again you'll get an athlete buy-in in in their first year but it usually takes long like Ali it took him a couple of years to buy-in or 18 months and we find that with most of the athletes. By the time they get to their third year, and especially their senior, they're they're 100% bought into your methodology and what you're trying to do for the program, for the team, and for them. And then it takes off. It accelerates from there. So it's it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, well, I love Team Squash, but it is just from my personal experience playing. Like, It's hard to go from all you care about is you and your, your training, your results, and now all of a sudden, you know, yeah, there's a lot more guys, It, you know, how yeah. your team does is more reflective of like what you give your team and how you help your team get better, not just yourself, like selfishly. Yeah. So it, it is a hard, hard transition, I think, for an individual sport. But I, nope. I once you get it, I loved it.
1: Yeah, no question. Uh, and of course, that's why the recruiting is, um, the recruiting is arguably the most critical point. And it's not just to do with their ranking. We eh, Nearly every year, nearly every year, we recruit a kid um, who's ranked below another kid on our list because of character, because of attitude, <clears throat> because of passion, enthusiasm, And um, we feel we're going to get more out of them through their four years and I'm sure every every good coach is, uh, has the same experience and it's not we're not talking about whether the other kids are bad kids. we're not talking about good or bad kids. We're just talking about where are they at in their life uh, in their lives at that moment. Uh, what does squash and being a varsity athlete mean to them? It's really yeah. what we're talking about.
0: So I just have a couple uh, uh generic kind of squash questions to finish off, which I'm kind of curious about. Uh, first one is if you have a favorite drill.
1: Yeah, well, um, I suppose, well, you can't have one. You can't have one favorite of anything, right? It's just not possible. <laughs> Unless, of course, <clears throat> it was to do with your favorite beer, then it would... Um, <laughs> Then it should be Guinness. But <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's leave that by the by. So you can't have one favorite drill. My favorite, <clears throat> my favorite thing to see is the most beautiful length laid down. I love nothing more <laughs> as I go. When my guys are drilling, so I talking about Ama Khalifa earlier. So I actually use the term, we still use it to this day. I I I term it Khalifa length. That's what we call it. I want to see some khalifa length so <clears throat> when i see whether it's rotating drives whether it's a length game or a length plus kill game um, i would say i love to see a, a beautiful length i love the length plus kill game because it teaches young players when to step up and volley so i <clears throat> give you an example when you get a kid that doesn't volley enough or take their volley opportunities. it's not usually to do with their lack of volley skills now it can be in younger kids and it can be in some you know some older kids but it's rarely that so it's more to do sometimes it's to do with speed across the middle fear of the ball going past them so yeah coach tells me to step up and volley And you hit a low, hard cross-court drive to my back, and and I'm scared that that's going to die, and I won't be able to deal with it beyond boasting back. So I sit back in the tee, And of course, we sit back because of nervous energy. So you can have a mental program that does so much. But the one thing we can all teach our kids is when is it safe to step up? So it is safe to step up when your opponent only has one option. So I bury the ball in your back left and you cannot take the ball cross court. Or I can move up and left because you don't have another option. i got to watch it in a regular game in case you're going to play a, a working boast. But you get my drift here. Yep. It is safe to me to move up when I hit my kill. Not my hard power kill necessarily, but when I lay my length down, short kill or deep kill, um Khalifa length and my opponent has to lift the ball this is safe so one of the first things i teach my kids is when is it safe to move up so i stand on top of a step ladder over the glass which believe it or not that's how i coach so i stand on top of a step that my head is in the court. i talk to my guys during the drills i am talking very quietly <clears throat> sometimes i say nothing if i say nothing it's a great drill But there are times when, so the kid that struggles with the volley, I'm looking for the volley opportunities that are safe and easy. And anybody who plays squash could take that volley opportunity. That's what I try to do. So I love, I love Khalifa length drills. I love length plus kill length games. We actually don't do length games anymore. We don't do them. They're only length plus kill games because I need my guys to move up. And my player's favorite, <clears throat> favorite drill, like 90% of them. It's what with what's called the drop drive game. <clears throat> the drop drive game is it takes a coach to feed the ball in. It's a deception game in the front of the court. I didn't know it was going to evolve how it's evolved. It's got lots of extensions, it's got four extensions to it. And I first started doing this with Jonathan. Um, And it sort of happened, again, it happened quite by accident. And it was, again, feeding into his strength and really trying to come up with drills and condition games that entertained him. Most important thing for Jonathan was entertain me. (laughs) Make it fun, make it exciting. But the drop drive game in our program is renowned. My women absolutely love it. More than any any other drill, and I would say seventy-five percent of my guys are well. But my my the women's team, some of them I can't <laughs> they would insist on playing it. I'm not exaggerating here every single day. Kaylee Leonard, Gina Kennedy, Eleanor Evans, Amelia Henley, I just couldn't get them off doing these bloody games, but God love them for it.
0: So is that like a straight game? Like you
1: always have the option of drop or drive or one person only has the option? So I'm, I'm the coach and I got two players, one in the front, one in the middle. <clears throat> I feed the ball in. If you hit a drive, the middle person must volley. If you hit a drop, you're the front guy. <clears throat> the middle person can either counter drop, straight drive or straight long. If they get the front guy out, they go to the front. But if you lob or drive, the person who was at the front can now volley it. I'm the referee, so I'm switching. If it's a point in a regular match, it's a point in this game. <clears throat> that means strokes as well. But I'm switching if I don't like the shots on the drives. If it's untidy, if it's not tight enough, ball crashes in the side wall too soon, but it wouldn't be a stroke in a match, I would sh- still shout switch now there are variations on these games so you, this is tough to describe and for your uh, <laughs> anyone yeah, I get it to, yeah. get, to get it but anyway it's enormous fun um, I would say that this was probably Ali's favorite drill um, this is the toughest drill if your opponent has the straight or cross-court drive so Ali would do this he would do this for the Mander at times Amanda Sobi and she would have straight drop, straight drive, cross-court drive. And the work he has to do from covering the straight drop and then covering a cross-court drive, if he could volley it to length and it was clean, it would be a switch. <clears throat> if he couldn't, he'd have to dig it out or he'd have to defensive boast. But the physical workload that is very high. On a normal straight drop, straight drive game, the physical workload is quite low.
0: No. But it is
1: one of the most engage- – I'd say it's the most engaging – condition game I have ever seen my student athletes do it's you can they never want to stop it's crazy yeah. crazy
0: well that's what you want it, it doesn't matter if you have something better planned but if they're not as en- yeah. as engaged it doesn't matter. Well, well
1: well it has its place right but you've got it sometimes the, the kids want to get there and it's the carrot at the end of the session so what you what are you starting with well hang on a second we've got to go through our length drills our body drills and so on we've got to do the stuff there's a place for it but in season, when we're so after Christmas when we're in season, there was never a day when certain uh certain guys weren't weren't insisting on doing this, so it was good for those that had good drops and deception in the front, and of course it was even better for those that didn't so you know as as uh as Nick Matthew would say, you know you nurture your strengths, your super strengths as he called them um and those that didn't. You know, you got to, you're just looking to develop, develop, develop. And again, it's not, can you hit, you know, it's not, can you hit a great drop shot? Great. You can hit a great drop shot. Can you hit 30? Can you hit 30 in this drill? So when the rallies were super long um, against the guys that can can concentrate, these rallies were gone forever. The the games would be four points long because the rallies would be of enormous length. So now we're practicing this deeper level of concentration and having to put in those 30 drops without making an error and without expecting a point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's cool. I like that one. Um, so I'm curious what your most underrated shot in the game is.
1: Well, I'm a Brit. So let me ask you, <laughs> can, you guess, can you guess what most Brits will answer when, they, when you ask them the question? I
0: mean, of course, the drop, shot? I feel like 10% might say the serve, but I'm going to say probably a straight drive.
1: No, I would say the most underrated shot in squash for me is the lob. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, and it is used, but can it be used more often and better and in different So, I know just about the classic lob from the front <clears throat> and the deceptive lob where you show the counter drop and flick the, the ball over. But the cross court high lob, especially the back end to the forehand <clears throat> when your opponent is controlling the pace and the, and the tee and the volleys and you want to mix it up a bit. So to me... And some of, the, some of the older coaches that know me, some of the Canadian coaches are probably laughing if they ever listen to this. Um, but um, that would, uh, that would probably, I think all coaches are frustrated by uh, the lack of straight drives, especially off the cross court. So it's all coaches are working on the, you know, you can't uh, condition games where you can't cross the cross. <clears throat> so yes, that would be in there. No, <laughs> my least favorite, my probably my least favorite shot is the cross court drop, um, the cross court nick attempt. You know, I like my my see. You know, if you if you own the cross court nick, okay, I want to see you go for it. But if <clears throat> you don't own it, you've got to have a cushion of points before you attempt it. So every random boast. So you, know, <laughs> you have your list of your least favorite shots is longer <clears throat> than the shot that you think is the most underrated. No. Cross, backhand cross-court server turns. Yeah. That, that list is too long. Your, your least favorite <laughs> response list is yeah. too long. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, so, Mike, obviously, you have so much uh, knowledge and wisdom from all of your time coaching, all the great players you worked with, the great team now at Harvard. Do you have any advice for young up-and-coming coaches?
1: Um, well, you know, I don't know. I don't have any specific advice there. When I look back, um, I got to tell you... <clears throat> Um, there's not much I'm going to pat myself on the back for, but I'm going to pat myself on the back here for being curious enough and bold enough <clears throat> to um, to invite so many great players and coaches uh, when I was up in Canada. And I'm never, never too. Pr- I listen to every- I, I listen to conversations that parents <laughs> have, even though parents can feel like sand in your swimsuit sometimes. <clears throat> I will listen. To anything uh, where there's the hint of a bit of wisdom or background there. So I love listening to opinions. I love listening to top players, obviously. But when I was younger and I decided I was going to be a coach, I felt um, that I really didn't, uh, I just didn't have the knowledge base and I didn't have it through my own game technically. So what I noticed at the time that there were three different camps of squash and in my day, it was the Pakistani camp, the English camp, um, and the Australian camp. And what I noticed is that they were very quick, not so much the Pakistanis, but the Aussies and the English, were very quick to be disrespectful to another camp, and to how they, what their methodology was, whether it was technical, tactical, or whatever. <clears throat> and what I, especially being in Canada, um, what I was exposed to was, was all three of them, sometimes because I, I made it happen. And what I realized was when I was younger, I, and I, this is what I did, I took what was common to each camp, and I noticed, in fact, that there were commonalities <clears throat> between them. So I came up with this theory. I still don't So I came up with this theory that I, I, I talked <clears throat> about what I call the pro-average box. So anything that was outside the pro average box, I wasn't going to teach. So I'll give you an example. If you, which I give this example a lot at coaching uh, seminars, if you took Jim Furyk's golf swing, because it is unique to him, you wouldn't put Jim Furyk's golf swing in your pro average box from a coach's point of view. Now you might have, you know, you might have like Victor Berg hit, hit with two hands, On his backhand and peter marshall so if you had somebody that was you could say in in the truest sense or nearly the truest sense in the word unique then that might be one thing but as a coach you've got to have a methodology so to me there were many english players that fitted in my pro average box not sure i completely felt comfortable with this extended wrist when they started talking about you don't cock the wrist in squash which one or two coaches, prominent coaches, went through, which I thought was a bit, a bit of a deviation. Um, you know, you had the uh, exaggeration of the the first and second position coming from the Australians. You had, which was interesting, the the, the slap drive that Remak Khan and the Pak or the Pakistanis did. So what I noticed was that there were these commonalities. So. You had what was known then as the Pakistani swing, but in fact, if you looked at all the top English and the top Australians, they all actually do this Pakistani slap drive where the arm on the back end, where the arm recoils back and doesn't sweep up to this sort of uh, 11 or 12 o'clock follow through, where the racket head stays lower. It's like uh, Ramat Khan, Jahangir's coach, used to talk about flicking a towel. So when I was younger, <clears throat> I noticed that there are all these things that actually overlap and they actually were not that different. That's what I thought. I thought they are not that different. <clears throat> so why don't you make your methodology, instead of it being a post-it, the size of a postage stamp, which I felt some coaches were, highly technical, <clears throat> it's got to be ex- exactly like this. I thought, no, no, it can't be exactly like this. It's got to be broader. So Jonathan, as an example, would often extend his wrist, as I was just talking about, on some of the coaching methodology <clears throat> from England. But most, the fact is, most players didn't do that. <clears throat> so would I teach someone to do Jonathan's back end? No. But it might spark a conversation. Yes. So you come up with this middle ground. And by inviting coaches... And in, and players and ex players to teach my guys uh, and to have these conversations that happen between the sessions and over a pint at night. I just felt I learned so much, and there were you know there uh, and the Aussies were a, were a fantastic group because the, the Aussies the Aussies always crack me up because they love to tell you especially if you're a Brit they love to tell you how wrong you've got it you know what I mean mate <clears throat> so they love to tell you how wrong you've got it. But I have never met an Australian coach or player that wasn't prepared and ready to open up and share how they felt about how they played. Every single one. Open books. Open books. <clears throat> if I experience a coach or a player who wasn't an open book, I thought, oh, okay, he thinks that there are secrets. There are no secrets. There's no secrets. <clears throat> and so, my advice to you and player is to go and do camps and clinics whenever you can with different coaches. If you want, try and do what I did. Set your own camps and clinics up and invite people. Invite them. And and watch how they work, watch their methodology. And then, of course, nowadays, of course, there's so much out there. We, We didn't have it when I was growing up. But now there's so much out there, you can now draw on so many different people and, and you want, my advice is you, you want and need a broad methodology. You want to, there are some things that I would still say, that I would say that this is incorrect. That technically is incorrect. Breaking the wrist in squash on the back end or in the forehead, forehead is incorrect. <clears throat> but it's got to have some breadth to it as well as the depth. Um, and so that would be my advice is get out there, meet different coaches different players have these conversations and learn learn about them
0: well i think that's a big part of why i decided to start this podcast not just to you know tell just stories but also to actually pick a lot of great coaches brains about you know how they got to where they are and like what like allows them to work with certain athletes and get the most out of them and and uh yeah you've obviously i mean i feel like i should be sending you uh some money for this, uh, session here. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'll
1: know. give you my, I'll give you my, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're coaching <laughs> at Harvard,
0: so you probably have a little bit higher salary than I do at Western, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully yeah. with the
1: salary, send the check. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you, you clearly deserve it. I am I'm really impressed how you were able to like start up basically on your own and you kind of have that motivation and, and, uh, foresight to kind of, make such an amazing impact in Canadian squash. Um, and it really hasn't, you know, hasn't been the same since then. It's just, uh, amazing that level of, uh, top level of players that, you know, you're able to work with and develop in, in Toronto and Canada and uh, now in Boston. So, um, yeah, obviously Harvard's really lucky to have you and, uh, you know, I feel really fortunate that uh, you were able to come on today, to, taking time away from your uh, kiteboarding in the off season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. To, yeah. The wind is up. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, bye. Okay.
1: Take care. We you, well. Cheers. Bye.
0: Well, that's it for episode five. I guarantee you enjoyed that. If you're a squash nut like me, uh, whether you're a player uh, or a coach, uh, lots of great information in there and uh you can tell he's really put a lot of thought into it and that's why he's you know gotten to the level he has as a coach um uh, and really you know inspirational just to hear how he kind of made his own success and uh you know made a name for himself and uh you know now he's you know obviously he's been successful for for quite a while But uh, really enjoy that chat. Thanks again, Mike, for coming on this episode. And I hope you guys enjoyed this too. And if you do, feel free to uh, subscribe or review and uh, look forward to our next episode, which is a bit of a uh, special one coming up uh, in two weeks for episode six. So make sure you tune in for that one as well.